Wedge Issues is brought to you by Wispolitics.com, a place where political insiders go for news, opinion, and campaign information. Once again, that's Wispolitics.com. For political nerds in Wisconsin, Charles Franklin needs no introduction. He's the director of the Marquette University Law School poll, which has come to be known as sort of the gold standard for measures of public opinion among Wisconsin voters in the months and weeks before an election. Charles Franklin is a frequent source for journalists and a source of joy and ire, depending on the results, for campaign staff and candidates. He joined me this week to talk about how he conducts and frames the poll, what he and other pollsters missed in 2016, why more polls are better than fewer, and the results of his recent statistical analysis of bourbon. I'm Jesse O'Poyan, and this is Wedge Issues, a Cap Times podcast about the 2018 elections in Wisconsin. Please stay tuned for my interview with Charles Franklin, but first, let's catch up on this week's news. All right, back with me this week is Jason Joyce, our news editor at the Cap Times, and he's going to talk to me about the news of the week, which I've boiled down to porn and protests. Yeah, the the two P's. And polling, actually. And polling. Three P's. Oh, wow, this yeah. is alliterative. That's good. Yeah, it's always good. Right. Um, so, yeah, so speaking of, uh, of uh, what, what were we going to start with? <laughs> well, let's, let's start <laughs> porn. with the porn? Oh, porn. Oh, yeah, porn. Yeah. So porn once again reawakens this issue of a Middleton Cross Plains school teacher who viewed porn at work and did not lose his job because of it. Correct. That is part of the governor's race now. That is a huge part of the governor's race. Yeah. Um, that has been the crux of the argument against Tony Evers from both the Scott Walker campaign and the Republican Party of Wisconsin and their ads. Um, as we've rehashed probably more than we need to, this teacher couldn't be fired, according to Evers and the Department of Public Instruction, because there was no proof that students had seen him looking at the porn. So the after effect of all of this is that the legislature passed a law that says viewing pornography in the classroom is, in fact, immoral conduct that you can have your license revoked for. Yeah. Um, but the Republicans on this are arguing that Evers should have fought harder against it, that he should have pushed to take it to court. There was a interesting ad put out this week by the Walker campaign that gets into pretty graphic detail. Um, yeah. These are not subtle ads, right? I no. mean, the images that they use are meant to make the viewer feel uncomfortable. It's men unbuckling their pants and a clip from the, uh, I guess, the district's investigation of this teacher talking about sex acts and yeah i mean you know the one the image that sticks in my mind is the you know the uh, sort of adolescent girl staring into the camera while they talk about some of what this teacher has engaged in yeah. and so it is in no uncertain terms meant to to put a fine point on uh basically trying to make evers own the actions of this yeah. teacher and and the fact and again the teacher is still employed he's he's teaching middle school science in the Middleton Cross Plains School District this year weird dynamic yeah. um, don't expect it to go away anytime soon 
um, yeah, it's been it's been uh, a porn heavy week up until the end of the week on right. NFL season opener when we started talking about the protests that have been taking place during the national anthem. Indeed, which I know you've studied up quite a bit on kind of how those came to be. Yeah. So Colin Kaepernick, I mean, this is in, you know, not only does the football season start, but the advertising season starts up right away too. Nike, you know, uh, gave uh, Colin Kaepernick, former NFL quarterback, quite a handsome licensing deal um, to have him promote their shoes, but basically promoting them through his own personality and his own protests. In uh, the preseason of uh, the 2016 football season, Colin Kaepernick decided that he was going to protest uh, racial inequality and uh, police brutality by, at first, sitting on the bench during the national anthem um, until he was sort of confronted and had a discussion with a guy named Nate Boyer, who was a former, sort of also ran a linebacker for the Seattle Seahawks, but also was a former Green Beret, who approached Kaepernick and said, you know, um, sitting is completely disrespectful consider kneeling instead. Um, And that's how Kaepernick came to start kneeling. One or two of his teammates quickly joined him. And then this has spread throughout the NFL. Not every team has players who kneel, but many do have players who kneel. And some players don't kneel always, sometimes do. This is clearly a thing. And Scott Walker has has, uh, staked out his his territory. He has. And the first time he brought this up was actually about a year ago. It was in October of last year. Uh, He sent a letter to the NFL and the NFL Players Association saying uh, he thinks that the players should stand with their hands on their hearts during the anthem. And instead of what you're doing, why don't you use your platform to draw attention to the issue of domestic violence? Yeah. So it came up again this week. Again, on the season opener, he dug up an old tweet from Mandela Barnes, the Democrat who's running for lieutenant governor. Um, Mandela Barnes tweeted in January of last year a link to uh, an article questioning whether Donald Trump knows the words to the national anthem. Mandela Barnes tweeted this with a commentary, uh, take a knee. So Scott Walker has been hanging on to that tweet, I assume, um, for a few months waiting for the season opener to put that out today and, and ask Tony Evers, what's your position on this? Before Evers could really weigh in, this turned into an all-out Twitter war. It escalated really quickly. You know, Scott Walker is making this an issue of this is disrespectful to veterans and um, those who are in the military currently. Mandela Barnes shot back and said, you were eligible to serve in three wars. Why didn't you enlist in the military? He tweeted a photo of himself wearing a Colin Kaepernick jersey. Um, they kept going back and forth. Scott Walker put out his bitmoji of himself standing with his hand over his heart in front of the American flag. He changed his Twitter avatar to this. He's going all in on the bitmoji. Yeah. Um, he kept going. He's, to my knowledge, was still tweeting into the afternoon on Thursday, um, just calling on players to stand and not to stay in the locker room, to just full on go stand on the field. Yeah. Uh, Rebecca Clayfish said that she knows of her, quote, Wisconsin neighbors who have witnessed Mandela Barnes kneeling during the national anthem himself. Right. A a charge that he quickly uh, called a lie. Yes. So the gloves are are off on this issue quickly. Evers said something. Evers said he supports the right to peacefully protest, supports the First Amendment rights, but he himself uh, stands during the national anthem, stands for the flag, said Scott Walker's trying to use this to distract people and divide them. I can't imagine it's the last we're going to hear about this either, though I wasn't necessarily expecting it to blow up the way that it did this week. Yeah. And this this sort of um, 
gloves off red meat, um, you know, approach to politics this week comes in the midst of the fact that there is a, a dead dead lock in the race. The the polls are indicating, um, and and it seems like we're getting a new one now pretty frequently that uh, that Evers and and Walker are are tied up. Yeah, you know, we're seeing a lot more, I think, than we have seen in some previous races. Um, firms that are not based in Wisconsin coming in mm. and doing the work on this. There's a Marist poll, um, Suffolk University partnered with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Of course, we have the Marquette poll. That's the subject of this week's episode. So yeah. we'll be talking to Charles Franklin in a few minutes about how he does his poll. Um, and, and that's really the one consistent thing that we have. And, and we use that as a measure, but it's really helpful. And Charles and I talked about this to have these other polls in to kind of show the context of, of what other people are hearing. So yeah, this week we've got a new poll from Public Policy Polling, PPP. It's a more left-leaning polling firm. They they do a lot of work on commission for campaigns or um, organizations. So they came in and, and did a poll this week, uh, paid for by a Democratic supporting group based out of Milwaukee. They found Evers leading Walker by four points. The last time PPP was here it was about a month ago. They had Evers leading Walker by five points. At the same time, Marquette poll has Walker up two points. Um, other polls have shown him up or down anywhere yeah. from two to four points to 13 points. Uh, and somewhere in the middle of there is probably the truth. Yeah, this is not um, at all diverging from the the sort of the narrative of statewide Wisconsin politics of since since Scott Walker was elected in 2010 and probably even before that, and that is that uh, we are a purple state. That depending on how energized either the Republican voter uh, group is and the Democratic voter group is, it's going to come down to election day, most likely again, which means a lot of commercials, a lot of back and forth, probably a lot of attacks between now and November 6th. That's two months away almost exactly. So how <laughs> how much we can all take of this, we'll, I guess we'll find out. <laughs> right? So close and so far away. Yeah. Well, I look forward to hearing from Charles Franklin. Well, I'm just going to have you start us off by introducing yourself a little bit. You sure. grew up in Alabama. I did. Um, what is the path from Alabama to <laughs> Madison and Milwaukee? Uh, well, I, I was actually born outside of Philadelphia in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, military father. Okay. Um, when he retired, we moved to his hometown in Alabama, so I grew up there uh, and went to college in Alabama, at a little Methodist liberal arts college. Grad school at Michigan, taught at Washington University in St. Louis for eight years, and then came to Madison in 1992 and stayed until 2013 when I moved permanently to Marquette to take over or create the Marquette poll. And Madison is still home. You make the yep. commute. Yeah, okay. I do. Uh, I like having a foot in both communities. Mm -hmm. I like big cities, but I like Madison as well. I have a wife and daughter who are uh, uh, employed or in school here. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's in some ways the best of both worlds except for the drive time, which is a little <laughs> more than it used to be. Yeah. Well, what sparked your interest in politics and polling? Well, gr 
Growing up in Alabama in the 1960s in the midst of the Civil Rights Revolution, uh, you'd have to be kind of thick not to understand how important politics is, how critical voting rights are, how discrimination is an insidious thing. And so I grew up in that period with both Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement and George Wallace and the reaction to that. So it became a central part of my childhood. And I, the odd thing is I was always interested in science. And I thought social science was something much more interesting and much more open to discovery. Uh, and it fit well with my interest in psychology and political science and voting and opinion. And so I ended up doing my first survey in the 10th grade for a 10th grade science project. Uh, and that sort of launched me down the path that has spiraled <laughs> down to what I do now. Uh, but it is unusual to, I think, <laughs> for anybody to be that interested in polls and public opinion at such an early age. But again, I, I think the environment that I grew up in really helped create that interest. And then I was helped along with really important mentors in the 12th grade and in my liberal arts college and then later in grad school and since. And so not to forget the importance of people who help a kid yeah. find their path. Yeah, that was I was going to ask, is, is pulling the kind of field where there are role models to look up to or, or people kind of who shape you along the way? Yes and no, in that, um, you know, I think my mentors were a high school government teacher, political science professors, so that those people that I did look up to tremendously and who helped were very much related to the field I was interested in. But I did not have portraits of George Gallup and Elmo Roper, <laughs> early pollsters, on my, uh, on my wall. I wasn't quite that crazy. Um, though a friend from college reminded me that she came into my um, dorm room one time and discovered that I had plotted out an entire model from a political science book on my on my corkboard. So yeah, maybe a little bit. <laughs> maybe out, a little out bit. Of line. <laughs> well, uh, you clearly have a, a personal interest, but there's a, a public good component here. What do you what do you see as sort of the the purpose of public polling? Sure. It's a different thing for me than the academic polling that I did most of my academic career, basically from 1980 until 2012 when I joined Marquette. Um in that scientific polling, the academic work we do, is very focused on testing a theory. Is it the case that campaign messages that are narrowly focused lead to people having a clear view on that narrow focus, whereas when they're spread out across many different issues, it actually leads to a bit more confusion among voters about where people stand. It's not a random example. That was one of the articles that I wrote way <laughs> back when. But that's a really narrow focus that's oriented with high-end statistics and argument and rooted in both political science theory and psychological theories. That's not of a whole lot of interest to the broader public um, even if you might distill it down into an interesting tiny bit. Public polling, on the other hand, 
has much less of that analytic character and much more, I think of it as a kind of reporting that when I do a poll and I present the results, I mostly just tell you what people told me. I may break down the results by party identification or rural, urban, something like that to try to illuminate something in the data. But I don't focus on complex statistical models to analyze those data. Rather, I'm trying to tell you what the public told us and let us join in a conversation. Uh, And so I think that's a real distinction between most of my career in academics and now where I think of myself as a glorified reporter Mm -hmm. able to go out and ask people questions and present the answers. Um, You know, sometimes people think of a poll as something different than talking to people, but our poll talks to 800 people for 15 minutes or so. That's actually a lot of conversation with people. Yeah. And the poll then reduces it to percentages. But there were real people having real conversations or at least answering real questions um, that led to that. So you mentioned real people making phone calls to other real people. Uh, In other words, not doing robocalls. And that gets into methodology a little bit. Can you uh, just explain the basics of how the Marquette poll works. So the Marquette poll is done with live telephone interviews. We do 60% on cell phones, 40% on landline. Um, So there's a real person at the other end of the phone. We use a professional call center that we contract with. So these are not students being made to do interviews for a class or something. And we use a, a method that's widely used in media polls called random digit dialing. What that means is we have a list of area codes and exchanges in the state, and then we add four random digits, and then we call that number. What that does is give every working number in the state, whether it's a cell or a landline, an equal chance of being selected into the sample. And that's the basis of the representativeness of the sample. Uh, Now, problems ensue in that not everyone picks up their phone. And in fact, about 80% of calls are never picked up. And so when you see a response rate, you need to remember that 80% not only didn't do the survey, but didn't know that it was a survey that was calling them. Sure. And so failure to pick up is because we all hate because they're having dinner or Mm -hmm. the baby's crying or too many, you know, yeah. marketing scams. So that's a complication for us, but we, we do it. So for the Marquette poll, how do you decide when you're going to go into the field, what you're going to ask about, um, how often you're going to do them during the year, <laughs> all of these things sure. that reporters are, are hanging on yeah. every <laughs> detail? Um, and, and the easy answer is we don't have a fixed schedule. Okay. So it's not every quarter or every month. Partly it's driven by political events. So in a non-election year, an odd-numbered year, we know we're going to get the state budget and a poll for anywhere from two to four weeks after the budget's been released at a time when it's been talked enough about that voters might know something about what's in it. 
but where it's still early in the legislative process. Then we usually come back in May or June, partly depending on where the legislative process is at that point, Mm -hmm. uh, given how much trouble we've had (laughs) passing budgets before August lately. I'm not sure we'll stick to that schedule because it's useful to have a poll when we're close to the resolution of the budget, but not after it's passed, at which point what people think doesn't have much impact on the on the bill. Right. Um, typically in those odd numbered years, we try to do four polls in all. Um, in some years, we do three. We did three in 2017, for example. Um, then in a midterm year like this one, we do somewhere between six and eight. Uh, we did a March, June, July, August will be coming up on three more through the fall. So that'll be a total of seven that we do this year. So the short answer is it depends on political events, but we do more in election years and we do even more in presidential years. Okay. When you're looking at which races to ask about, you know, sometimes you ask about an attorney general race, sometimes you don't, um, and then also issues. Sometimes you ask about something like Foxconn, which we can expect, but sometimes there are issues that maybe aren't uh, at the forefront of the news cycle. How do you kind of select those things? There there are kind of two parts or three maybe to the survey. One is what I think of as core items. So we're always going to ask job approval of the president and the governor. Mm-hmm. We're going to ask, do you have a favorable or unfavorable opinion of uh, the two state U.S. senators, Paul Ryan, because of the position that he's held in Congress? We've asked about most of the time. Um, then we ask about people who are candidates only when they become candidates and we're getting into an election year. And, you know, it's pretty foreseeable that they're likely to be on the ballot at that point. Um, Other kinds of questions that aren't quite core but are close to it are Foxconn right now is a good example. We asked three questions about Foxconn that we started asking in March. So we've asked those three questions every time, and I imagine continuing to do that because this is obviously an important political issue. It's being much talked about and debated. Both sides are trying to change opinion in their direction about it. And so by asking about it every every poll, we establish a trend line and we can see whether opinion is moving in favor, staying still, or moving against. Mm-hmm. And with three different questions, we get three different aspects of the Foxconn issue, whether overall it's worth it, whether it will help the economy in the Milwaukee area, and do you think it will help businesses where you live? So that's not everything one might ask, but it is three important elements, and the continuity of asking them regularly is important. Then finally, we have a set of questions that we only ask when political events give us a reason to ask. Mm -hmm. So education is much an issue in this fall's campaign. Yeah. So surely we're going to be asking <laughs> education issues, some that we've asked in the past so we can see if opinions changed, but some are tailored to the events of the of the moment. Uh, other issues we asked about the governor's 
handling of the abuse allegations at the Lincoln Hills Juvenile Prison. We Mm -hmm. asked about that in the uh, August poll for the first time. Um, It's been an issue, but the governor's press conference on prisons, his statement that he saw no reason to visit the prisons, Mm -hmm. gave us an appropriate reason to ask about that at a time that the issue was in the news. And even then, it turned out that 49% said they hadn't heard anything about it. Yeah. So that also drives home the point that uh, a pretty significant issue with a lot of very good reporting about the nature of the issue, yep. nevertheless, is not guaranteed to reach uh, the sort of public consciousness, or at least 49% of, of right. the public consciousness. <laughs> it shows how... Whether it's a a new candidate who's trying to introduce themselves to voters or an issue that may be kind of lingering like Lincoln Hills or may be brand new, Mm -hmm. takes time to penetrate the public. And with changes in local media coverage and resources and, and readership and those sorts of things, absent playing a really phenomenally big role, it's easy for the public to miss issues. So uh, for reporters and political junkies, every time we know the Marquette poll is coming, Twitter goes nuts. It's a it's a day for nerds to follow closely these numbers. And we're kind of hanging on every word that comes from that presentation. You know, there, it's it's true. On, on the one hand, it's really the only public poll we have that's reliably in Wisconsin. But uh, we, we trust the poll. Um, we wouldn't be reporting on it if we didn't trust it. So why do you think uh, your poll has come to be sort of what we consider to be the, the gold standard in Wisconsin? I think it's a combination of factors. Let me say that we've actually been lucky in the last couple of months to have, I think it's four or five polls done in the state from organizations outside of the state. Right. And that's good. We don't all agree with each other, which allows people to look across the polls and get a better idea of how uncertain they should be about the polling. Mm-hmm. The, the bad thing when we're the only pollster is here's our number, but you have nothing to compare it with. Well, now you have a range that goes from us having the governor's race tied to another poll that has Walker down by 13 points. So that gives you an idea of how much variation. And most recently, you have us tied. You have, I think, Walker down by two in one poll and by five in another, all three done after the primary. So if you just look at that and you don't care about who the pollster is, you'd say this is a tight race, but Walker might be down by two and a half. Just take the average of those. Um, And so I think that's a good thing that we have. It's really unfortunate that support for the St. Norbert poll has been cut by public radio because that gave us a longstanding pollster in the state, and news media has been less able to fund uh, polling, and polling has gotten more expensive over time. So I think those are considerations to have. I'd like to believe that people pay attention to our poll because we've generally been pretty good in the accuracy. Um, Granted, 2016 was not one of those cases. We had Clinton ahead by four, and she lost by three-quarters of a point, and we had Um, Feingold up by one, that's inside the margin of error, but he lost by five. So we did not have a good 2016. 
but we had done well in terms of accuracy in all the previous races. So that's part of the issue, and I think 2016 shows why you should never believe one poll is the gold <laughs> standard if that in any way implies invariable accuracy. You can be wrong. Um, so I think those are things that are pretty important. And lastly, I hope that the transparency of the poll is part of this as well. From the very beginning, we've been transparent in the sense of releasing every single question we ask and the results for them, uh, cross tabs showing the breakdowns by a large number of demographic groups. We disclose our funding from the very beginning. We're funded by alumni contributions to the Dean's Discretionary Fund, <laughs> which means that no one actually writes a check to pay for the Marquette poll. They write a check to the college, the law school, for the dean to spend as the dean sees fit. So all of those things come together. And finally, I like to think I answer people's questions when they have questions. And you are, you know, as, as much as we respect and laud you, Fun. you are certainly on the receiving end of plenty of criticism for people who either don't like the results or don't like the weight of the sample or, um, you know, all, all, all kinds of things that they may take issue with. How do you kind of wade through those those criticisms? Anybody that gets into polling and doesn't expect that has no <laughs> clue as to what they're doing. Um, necessarily, at least one side is going to be upset with a result in a poll. If you're really good, you can make both sides upset. <laughs> and, you know, this is fine. The point of being transparent and putting everything out there is so that those debates can take place based on information. Uh, a lot of the criticism about the sample, for example, couldn't take place if we were not transparent about what we're getting. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, I think I have control about what questions we ask, about how we design and weight the sample. But, and, and we you know, make all of that clear to people. But after that, all I'm doing is telling you what people told me. Uh, and that's, I think, the, the core issue, or maybe misunderstanding. The idea that I should change the results to fit better with what someone else thinks the public thinks is antithetical to what pollsters do. We do our best to design the survey in a technically accurate, solid way. We check our data. We do other things. But in the end, we don't have control over those results. We instead have an obligation. And maybe we're right and maybe we're wrong, but we don't have this agency that lets me decide, oh, I think there's 5% more Democrats than Republicans. I'll wait that sample because it fits what I believe to be the case. Mm -hmm. Instead, I design the survey. I ask people. They tell me. I tell you. You believe it. You don't believe it. It has nothing to do with the way the poll is processed or produced. So do you ever, I mean, when, when the results come back, do you ever look at them and think, I don't, I don't think that looks like our electorate? <laughs> I'm always surprised by something each time. And I'm, of course, always concerned about whether we've captured things well. Um, but 
there are a variety of things that I look at and check. Now, there's a side question of if we had a disaster sometime, there is a legitimate question of what you do in that case. Mm -hmm. But there are good cautionary tales uh, before a recent, uh, I think it was a Virginia election. A pollster had done a poll that showed the front runner losing and sat on the poll because they didn't believe it. And then it turned out the front runner lost. Oh. <laughs> and so uh, it's a, a great example to pollsters, but maybe to the public as well, that our data may be right or wrong. But to sit on the data after you've collected it is fundamentally breaking that idea that I'm going to ask people and I'm going to tell you what they told me. Yeah. And live or die on that. Um, so I think there are certainly cases where pollsters have found results that they thought were puzzling. I, I, for example, I expect the Marist folks uh, who did the poll that showed Walker down by 13 may have scratched their heads a bit about that. That mm -hmm. is an enormous margin for an incumbent seeking a third term to be down by. Yeah. But it's to their very great credit that they went ahead and put out that result because they were honestly reporting what they found. That's the one area where it's really helpful if there are multiple other polls going on at the same time. Sure. Because then you're not dependent on me. I think, again, one of the worst things is for the Marquette Law School poll to be the only poll active in the state. Yeah. But it's the only one I have control of. <laughs> That's true. Wedge Issues is sponsored by Wispolitics.com. You can become a Wispolitics.com member. Find out more at Wispolitics.com slash membership. Well, something I've wondered about and, and had conversations with people about as they sort of theorize over you know, any election result is, do you think there's ever a case where the poll result becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy where, you know, Tony Evers is up in the beginning of the primary because he's got a lot of name recognition and he continues to stay up and then people think he's going to win and he wins. And that being an, an example that I think yeah. people have, have wondered about. I, I think that is always a, a legitimate concern. And there are a couple of things about it. There are pieces of research that suggest that's not the case. I've looked at all of the state-level governor, Senate, and presidential races since 1998. And if it were the case that a big margin for somebody swayed the electorate, you would expect the polls to be systematically wrong because that big margin would actually up their overall performance. Sure. Right? Uh, that doesn't actually seem to happen. In fact, when we look across all the polling over those many, many races, sure, the polls are too high or too low. But in states where somebody's far ahead, they still win by about that average. So that doesn't look like what you would expect to see if the polls were swaying voters at the end. Yeah, I think there are some issues about polls becoming too major a part of the story in the last days of the election. 
And I'd actually hold up the Des Moines Register poll as an example of this. Okay. Uh, Ann Seltzer, who does the polling for the Register, is one of the most respected pollsters in the business. But the, the newspaper releases that poll usually in their Sunday edition two days before the election. Yeah. That's good for news. And it's good for accuracy because it means you poll a little bit closer to the election. Yeah. But we've always released the Marquette poll on Wednesday before because I think it's important to give the campaigns that much time to push back about whatever our result is. And presumably, whoever's behind pushes <laughs> back strongly. Yeah. But it does have a downside, but it's a deliberate downside. It means our polling ends close to a week before the election. Yeah. And in 2016, it's certainly possible that there was a lot that changed in that last week, at least in the presidential race and arguably in the Senate race as well. So there's certainly a, a reason for polling later into that week. But in terms of not wanting to be the last word on the race, but rather give time for the candidates, that's what we've chosen to do. Um, and I, I stand by that, even though there are some downsides to doing it that way. Sure. 2016 has come up a few times in this conversation. I know you've hashed it out over and over again over the last two years, but takeaways, things that you think contributed? I mean, it wasn't just your poll. It was a lot of polls that didn't see the results coming. I have a lot of good company, at least. <laughs> um, there were about 33 or four polls done in Wisconsin between uh, August and Election Day. Not one of them ever had Trump ahead. So that's the good company. But at the same time, almost all of them, including ours, stopped interviewing before the last week of the campaign. There was one that interviewed in the last week, and it found no change from the week before. Hmm. So that sort of undercuts the idea that the Comey letter in that last week was critical. Yeah. But again, that's one poll. It would have been nice if we'd had two or three or four. The best that we can see from looking at the exit polls here in Wisconsin and looking at national polls that called the same respondents back after the election that they had talked to before the election is that people really did shift their vote or finally settle on Trump as the candidate in that last week. There's still a lot of debate about how big the impact of the Comey letter itself was. But if I can say this for Wisconsin, first of all, it does not look like a turnout issue. Across six different regions of the state, we were within a percentage point or a point and a half in the worst case of the actual turnout in all of those regions. So we didn't underestimate the vote in, say, the Northwest, the strong Trump territory. Where we were badly wrong was in the vote for Trump in the suburban Milwaukee counties and, to a lesser extent, going up to Green Bay. In that southeastern area, Trump did worse than Mitt Romney did. So he underperformed history in the reddest part of the state. But he still did considerably better than where we had him 
in our final poll. So I think some of that could be late decision. Also, some of it surely is that for Republicans who had real reservations about Trump, and you can see from the Republican primary voted for Cruz instead here, that those Republicans also had a truly abysmal view of Hillary Clinton. So it meant the option of going with the Democratic candidate was really not an option given how negative Republicans' views of Clinton were. So then you're faced with don't vote, vote for a third party, or vote for your party's nominee, even with reservations. So all of that's post hoc. We do see in the exit poll that of those that say they decided in the last week, two out of three, or in one case three out of four, went to Trump. That's unusual. Normally late deciders break more or less evenly. So I think that's the evidence that says late decisions were a big part. I don't think, given that we got turnout as well as we did, that it was a turnout issue or about certain people in certain parts of the state not talking to us, or we wouldn't have gotten the turnout right. Right. But that gap, especially in the southeast, where we saw reservations about Trump, but he did better than we expected, um, is what happened. So what other misconceptions are out there, whether it's about the Marquette poll specifically or just the way polling works that you would like to address? Well, so probably the biggest one that I get is that people still don't appreciate that we call a majority of our calls on cell phones. Okay. Uh, I think in part because that's been reported as a problem with polling is the growth of cell phones. Yeah. That was only really a problem in the early 2000s, which if you're old enough to remember, cell phones cost you an arm and a leg for every minute of use. And pollsters would often actually offer to reimburse people, send them a check for the time they used on the cell phone. Well, that was a big deal because we really cared that we were getting a call on our expensive cell phones. That's not the case and hasn't been for years. And so normally people just take the call. And if it's the landline that rings or the cell phone that rings, it's just the phone ringing. The other side is we're now up to 93% of the public that have a cell phone. It's not their only phone. Uh, About 60% only have a cell phone now. Uh, But 93% have a cell phone. So it's just part of life. So the cell phone issue is not really an issue for reaching voters. The biggest issue is people not wanting to pick up the phone. And that's where telemarketing has been an issue. And in the last couple of years, there seems to have been an explosion of illegal telemarketing calls to cell phone numbers. And I think that too, as with landlines a decade earlier, has made people more reluctant to pick up a call if it's not from a number that they know. And as a practical matter, that simply means that I have to make more total phone calls to reach 800 people. And it means that I can't reach the people who will never pick up an unknown call. But those folks are, again, 
just as likely to be Democrats or Republicans. Nobody likes those kinds of calls. Mm -hmm. It is one of the pressures within the industry for why moving to other types of surveys, whether it's online surveys or old-fashioned paper surveys that get sent to you in the U.S. mail and (laughs) fill them out and send them back. Um, Those solve some of the problems, but they create other problems. At the moment, old-fashioned telephone surveys are still uh, good, despite the 2016 results in some states. Nationally, the results were actually as accurate as they've ever been had Clinton up by 2%, and she won the popular vote by 2%. So from the point of view of a pollster, we did okay. Uh, So I read in an interview with you that you personally do not vote. Is that still true? I started in 2002 working for ABC News as an election night analyst. And the combination of two things, that I was being publicly interviewed about politics and that I was now in a role that required objective decisions about what's the shape of this race, who's winning this state. I just decided that both of those things made it better for me to stand back a little bit from elections. And a small way to do that is by not voting. Um, Now, there are legitimate arguments on both sides of this. There are plenty of of reporters and other pollsters who think voting is a right. Some would go as far as saying it's a duty. Mm -hmm. Um, And I understand that. But for me, if I'm calling a state or if I'm giving an analysis, just not committing to a candidate helps me stand a little bit back. And it's it's hard to do because I am human. But I I think as a political scientist prior to this, I had always tried to do my analysis from an outside point of view, Mm -hmm. step back, let the data speak. And as I got into this more public role and one with, um, you know, election night um, analysis, I just felt it was better to have that sort of distance. Um, When I retire from this, I will vote in every election, every time for as long (laughs) as I can, just to make up for my years of absence. So far, we have not had a race determined by my one vote. That's true. That does happen every now and then. It does somewhere, (laughs) almost every election. I can't be sure (laughs) I won't be the guy that, that messed this up. So you, on, a, on a personal side, your, your Twitter feed, you're very active on Twitter from mm-hmm. everything from you've got spreadsheets and <laughs> graphs and bourbon and cats and just it, it's, a, it's an interesting mix of things. So when you're not, think, is there a time yeah. when you're not thinking about numbers and graphs and, and science uh, or is that wow. always kind of going on? <laughs> I did do a statistical analysis of bourbon, I have to admit. <laughs> Um, So you might consider me one-dimensional, but I see the bourbon as definitely second dimension. And and cats, um, and sometimes the dog. Um, You know, I like Twitter, and I would say the the large proportion of the things I send out are data of some kind about politics of some sort. But I try to keep that at the professional information level in 
2009, Mark Blumenthal and I founded pollster.com, which was one of the first polling aggregation sites in the country that took took the polls and averaged them and plotted them and mm-hmm. updated it every day. And we did that for several years, and then it was bought by Huffington Post, where it um, still resides. But in doing that, it's it, it's sort of like thinking of myself as a weird kind of reporter, that I want to put out information about what the polling is showing, how much it varies, what you can conclude from that. I don't want to be an advocate for one point of view in in that polling. Um, Because there's plenty of advocacy out there, and I think relatively not enough of the analytic side. Happily, since Polster was founded, the analytic side has become more popular with um, Nate Silver, but mm-hmm. Real Clear Politics and others as well. Um, so I think that's an important part of what I do on Twitter. The other thing that surprised me about Twitter is how many interesting things I found out on Twitter from <laughs> random people that <laughs> I didn't know, but I noticed they did something and it was interesting and I started following it. So I have a a list of Twitter people that post pictures of medieval manuscripts. And <laughs> okay. they're quite remarkable things. <laughs> uh, and other things that are both political and non-political. Um, yes, you, you tweeted recently about your bourbon statistical analysis. Do, do you have a favorite bourbon? Um, I, I, I like Blanton's. Um, they're not compensating me for this endorsement. <laughs> Noah- I have to start selling sponsorships. For- yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Noah's Mill is another one that I like. I, I, this is a little bit odd because I've been mostly a beer drinker through my life. And in the sort of middle years, it was scotch. Mm. And so I had not had a bourbon since college until about four or five years ago when I rediscovered bourbon. And so I've kept the stock of of bourbon, um, and I've enjoyed tasting it uh, over the last five years. Uh, But I don't consider myself a a well-informed connoisseur at all. I am also a big bourbon fan. Noah's Mill is among my favorites, too. So we're we're on the same page on that. Good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You have cats. You have a dog. Uh, Tell us a little bit about... one, one cat, okay. one dog. One cat, one dog. Okay. Um, the the cat is just a mixed breed, um, beautiful, wonderful cat named Sarah, who purrs a lot. So she's nice that way. Uh, the dog is a Shiba Inu, which is a smaller Japanese breed. Looks sort of reddish, a little bit like a fox, and um, she's a little more grumpy, yeah. but she can go from happy to. Uh, that's mine and don't you take it. <laughs> and she's particularly good in jumping in my favorite chair when I get up. And then we have to negotiate whether I get to sure. get back on that chair. Um, and you know, so we've had dogs for a long time. We're now down to just this one. But mostly we've had Shelties over time. But uh, uh, sadly, they have gone away now. You know, those, those, two, those dogs do have attitude. They have attitude. They're they're absolute clickbait on Twitter. Oh yeah, you can't post a picture of the dog and not get retweets and likes. Yeah. Um, if only they knew the 
ugly truth beneath <laughs> the pretty exterior. You could say that about the, a lot of the internet. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It's more appropriate than I thought. <laughs> Well, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you to share something else that you think people would be surprised to learn about you or, or something that people just don't see a lot of. Gee, um, I, I doubt that anybody would truly be interested in it, but um, there was a moment in college when I almost became a theater major. Really? Uh, so that's probably uh, a little bit out there, um, but I had a theater major for a roommate and a theater major for a girlfriend and uh, I mostly did technical production but I did act in a couple of small one acts things like that minor roles very minor roles okay but uh, the rumor around the college was that I was changing my major and it was never more than a rumor but it uh, <laughs> it got serious enough because I was spending so many more hours in the theater than I was sure in the library <laughs> uh, probably my grades reflected that that semester <laughs> Have you ever thought about getting back into the, the theater you life? Know, again, who knows once <laughs> this travail is over. But I, the thing about theater to me is whether it's the high school production or something at Overture, I almost never go to a play and not enjoy myself. Mm -hmm. There's something about even a poor play that still sucks me in and I just enjoy it. So on my to-do list for after the election is to clip out the listing of all the plays in town from high to low and try to make it a point of going to them much more often than I have been. Uh, well, I have taken up plenty of your time. Do you have any, is there anything I haven't asked you about that you would want to talk about or any sort of closing words you want to leave I, people with? I think that we've covered a lot of area. I, I guess I would come back to this idea that my poll and almost every other poll, certainly the ones from major polling sources, are our best efforts to convey to you what the state of public opinion is in our poll. Compare two polls taken at the same time, they will differ. Sometimes they'll differ only a little, sometimes they'll differ a lot look at what is common to those and say, okay, that's pretty good agreement. Uh, remember that they could all be wrong. Uh, and in the end, you should surely be out voting and supporting the causes that you believe in, not, a, not supporting the cause that my poll said is winning. That's, that's crazy talk. Yeah. Don't do that. Okay? <laughs> Use it to take away from something. Actually, I would say this. In every poll we release, not by design, but just because it's there, there's almost always good news and bad news for both sides. And so you should look at the bad news for your side and figure out what to do to fix that problem. And you could look at the bad news for the other side and figure out how to maximize that advantage <laughs> and make them pay for it. So polls are a, a, a resource for campaigns, but only if you don't argue with them, you take what's good out of them and you use them for your advantage. And again, to find out what maybe you're with people about. So I think those are the things and, you know, I posted something the other day about 
partisanship is a hell of a drug showing how opinions about the economy instantaneously reversed after Trump was elected, before he'd even taken office, Republicans suddenly thought the economy was going great. Democrats suddenly thought it was much worse than when, you know, before the election. And inevitably on the Twitter stream, people respond to that in ways that prove my point. (laughs) Yep. And I don't think that is functional for us as political actors if all we do is distort the world to favor what we think it is or should be. And I think polling can help us get a little rooted in the way the world is, even if it's a fallible instrument. And since my heart still likes to be, I'm coming Thank you for listening to Wedge Issues. Our theme music is Oh, Wisconsin by Loxley. We've got new episodes coming out every week on Friday, so make sure you're subscribed and tell all your friends to subscribe too. If you have feedback or suggestions, you can tweet at me at jessieopie or email me at j-o-p-o-i-e-n at madison.com or you can also leave us a rating or review on iTunes or any podcasting platform where you find us. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week. Wedge Issues has been brought to you by Wispolitics.com. There are plenty of benefits to becoming a member. You can go to Wispolitics.com slash membership to find out more.